Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at the United States Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, where we're doing a series of interviews about the challenges facing the Navy, the United States, and its allies. And we're talking to retired United States Navy uh, Captain Al Shimkus, a former Nurse Corps uh, officer who is uh, an associate professor here uh, teaching uh, irregular warfare, but as well as warfighting uh, ethics, uh, driven in part through personal experience. And the uh, views you express are your own, and you're not speaking for the uh, the war college. Um, let me let me start with the question of what irregular war at sea looks like. Uh, China and Russia, uh, in their doctrinal material, are trying to avoid sort of that battle of consequence. They're preparing for it, mm-hmm. but there is a huge investment, uh, particularly in the case of the Chinese. You know, build islands, boil the frog before it realizes it's bo- boiled. You know, very Sun Tzu-ish. Win without fighting, if you can. Uh, have uh, naval militias with fishing boats that will inundate and confound uh, targets. Talk to us in the fullness of this. What does irregular warfare look like from the standpoint of somebody who's studying the, the problem? I think as many things as the commanding officer needs to be aware of, being at sea in an environment which may include conflict, I think they must also consider the likelihood or the possibility of chemical or biological warfare being imposed upon that platform at sea. And based on the nat- nature of what we believe is an important piece of preparedness, they must, they must drill, they must actively think about um, being confronted with either biological or chemical. I think chemical is easier in that they have detection facilities that can be able to identify what the chemical is. Biological, not so much. Biological is something that we need to be thinking about um, as a Navy, but also as the commanding officer who is going into harm's way. How do you recognize that biological attack has occurred? It's very difficult. You know, the United States does not have chemical or biological weapons. There was an ambitious program to destroy as, as much of those stockpiles, uh, to, to eradicate those stockpiles. And yet we find that nations continue to develop them to get under the nuclear bar but still have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, Syria certainly had massive stockpiles of nerve agents and chemical weapons and even biological weapons. Uh, there was a big international effort to get rid of them. Um, most of them were gotten rid of, maybe not all of them. But then the regime then started producing chlorine bombs to be able to say, well, you know, that's not covered and, you know, we can do that even though it's, it's effectively still a, a deadly agent. What's the right way to deter, to change this landscape, especially in an environment where the United States doesn't have equal weapons that it can use, right? We have to either, you know, go full conventional or escalate to nuclear. And then some folks would argue, well, I mean, that's not really the same thing. You know, talk to us about the dynamic here. I think the nature is preparedness. And I think being adequately prepared to deal in a chemical and biological environment is actually deterrent. If the adversary believes that we are able to deal and work in an environment that is contaminated, the likelihood of them using then is, is, is less. So my thought is be, to be adequately prepared, if not very well prepared to deal in that environment, is actually deterrent for the adversary to use that against us. Uh, do you think that international punishment efforts how would you gauge the international effort to, for example, deter Syria? You know, we had a strike early on. Uh, we did a secondary strike, but there are those who say that, you know, are the inconsistency in those strikes then causes a problem, that every time they're used, you, you've got you've to sort of hit, you know, use, to bring that sledgehammer out and hit them. Does that inconsistency 
perhaps encourage more use? I mean, do you need to, does the international community have to be very consistent on this issue to keep? In my opinion, the, the international community and the United States being in the lead in this arena needs to be consistent in their retribution against adversaries who would use this against their people or, and others. Do, do you think, is there enough intellectual work being devoted to, I mean, once upon a time during the Cold War, as we were, we were talking before the interview, there was a lot of thinking on nuclear, biological, chemical warfare, how to continue to prevail in it. In the first uh, Gulf War, uh, everybody was in full chemical kit in the middle of the, the desert, losing 10 pounds a day, uh, you know, sweating it out in part because we didn't know what Saddam was going to do in terms of, 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 of his uh, response. Um, are we spending enough time? Are there enough uh, Al Shimkuses out there working together within the military community to think through some of the problems and challenges that we may be facing five, ten years down the road? I think our colleagues at Fort Detrick and other areas of research are actually engaged in this kind of research to prevent uh, casualties coming on from the American and Allied side. And in fact, I think the nature of what has occurred in Syria and other places has uh, rekindled the interest in this arena. And our scholars are actively seeking um, research in the context of being better prepared than we have been in the past. Um, you are uh, also uh, an ethicist uh, here. You're, you, or, well, you, you teach or, or, or think a lot about ethics. Um, uh, you were uh, the commander of the Guantanamo Bay uh, Naval Base uh, Hospital uh, when it was uh, turned into the detainee center uh, after 9-11. Uh, and um, you've written extensively about you know, your obligation to the country uh, your country, uh, and on the other hand, the obligations you have under the Hippocratic Oath as a medical uh, a member of the medical prof profession. Uh, talk to us uh, about those lines. Uh, some folks say that those lines should be blurred in the event of uh, you know an incident like that. We heard it with the Gina Haspel in terms of the, uh, the the torture discussion that happened during her confirmation process. She has since been confirmed uh, as as the new CIA director uh, succeeding Mike Pompeo, who obviously fleeted up to Secretary of State. But talk to us about the challenge and your thinking about the complex ethics associated with um, you know how the United States copes with non-uniformed combatants, if you will, uh, at, at, at the end of the day? I think the nature <clears throat> of the decisions that young men and women make to serve their country in uniform, who are also physicians and nurses and um, others who have a license to practice, they must look at the nature of their obligation to the country. They must look at the obligation to their profession. And they must make the right choice in the environment in which they serve. Um, in the situation in which we found um, in Guantanamo, we were in a situation in which a uh, nation was at risk, a threat against more activity after 9-11. And the men and women in Guantanamo who were there initially and then subsequently um, have to make a choice about what's right for them as a nurse, physician, um, and also as a commissioned officer. I don't think that anyone can predict what the right answer would be, except they have to look and reflect themselves as they think about what's right for them and their country. And the nature of an environment such as Guantanamo or other detention sites, um, they have to make a decision whether to um, have their Hippocratic Oath and their obligation to do no harm primary or um, their obligation to the Constitution being primary. Uh, do, do, the challenge, though, some would say is 
that in a military organization, you know, you're going to be told, well, Mr. Shemkus, thank you very much for your views and get on with it. Um, does there have to be more intellectual change in the organization to accommodate those different conclusions from folks from the medical community to say, I am uncomfortable with this or I am fully comfortable with this? I think we've evolved as a healthcare community serving our nation in uniform that the op opportunity for people to recuse themselves from that kind of an environment exists and that the individual decision has to be made by the individual provider. I think we have matured since 2002. Now it's 2018, 16 years later. And so our uniformed healthcare providers have um, been able to understand the environment in which they're in and make the right choice for their nation and for their profession. What was that? Um you know, you're, you're a retired Navy captain, uh, devoted your life to the Navy, devoted your life to the medical profession in the, in the nurse corps. What, what, was, what were those weeks and, and months like? Because folks uh, focus on the combat side of things. They know that the detention center was open. But what was that initial period like at a base whose this was not the purpose of the base? I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, folks, I think, were a little surprised, like, wow. Guantanamo Bay is being used for this. Right. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about what that period was like for you uh, at the time. The least worst place, in the in the words of the, this, the Secretary of Defense, was a place in which before this occurred was um, Mayberry RFD, Jimmy Buffett Land. I mean, it was a wonderful place to be. Small fa small base, focused on families. Um, in fact, the base commander and I went down to close the base and a hospital facility to keep it in an up, upkeep position. As the mission evolved, um, we had significant discussion in the medical department as well as the line officers about what does enemy combatant mean? What does what an enemy combatant different than a prisoner of war? And so I think we made the right choices in relationship to the quality of health care these people received. The other component, of course, was that the detention facility was not designed to take care of these people in a health context. They were designed to gain information which may have prevented the next 9-11. And so the nature of us wanting to do what's right for an injured or ill human being was significant, but we also understood that the nature of the mission was not necessarily health care. And so we had to make a choice with regard to uh, the elements of our obligation to the individual human being that may be injured or ill and also the nature of our obligation to the Constitution to do what was required in that period of um, significant tension in the country with regard to the next attack. And, and you're um, comfortable that that balance was struck properly from your standpoint? I believe the people who were there at the time, as they continue to do in 2018, are making the right choice both for the country and, the, and their profession. Uh, Al Shimkus, retired U.S. Navy captain, who is a professor uh, here, an associate professor here uh, on uh, irregular warfare as, as well as uh, ethics of irregular warfare. Uh, sir, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. Pleasure.